0: Turning your Bibles to Psalm 103, we are going to finish and uh, continue what was started last week. Uh, We opened up Psalm 103 and uh, did not finish it, but we're going to finish it today. I don't like normally, uh, you know, splitting things in half like that, but it just uh, turned out that way. But Psalm 103, 22 verses, we're not going to read it. Uh, all 22, but we'll read the remaining verses uh, as we walk through it this morning. The theme or the title is the heart of worship. The heart of worship, Psalm 103. Worship, uh, just by way of a real quick review, it's online. I encourage you to there be there were several things that we spent in detail last week, and I would encourage you to check it out online. But worship, even just to the casual reader. Worship is a dominant theme in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, Worship is a major focus. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, the part of the Shema of Israel, uh, reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're to be all in in our engagement and worship to the Lord. John MacArthur in his book, The Ultimate Priority, a book on worship, says this. It's a helpful definition. There's multiple. It's not the only one, but it's helpful. Worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. And that's exactly what we see in Psalm 103 is David. Remember the Bible says David is a man after God's own heart. And I believe that one of the reasons he was a man after God's own heart is because he was a worshiper. He was a worshiper and he knew how to worship God. And Psalm 103 is uh, certainly a, 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 a psalm of worship, but it really is uh, in its totality, a psalm of worship. Uh, there's, there's no petitions for God's intervention or help. There's no cries of deliverance as we see in uh, other psalms. Uh, it's David expressing his gratitude and the, the worship of God that uh, God so desires and deserves. David overflows with uh, reiterating God's blessings in his life. You remember Jesus said in John 4 something important of how God is looking after people that will worship Him. Remember Jesus said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, that's interesting, isn't it? True worshipers, not fan club, not admirers, but true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We've got some churches that are quote unquote strong in spirit and not so strong in truth, and others that are strong in truth that need a little spirit. So I, Jesus wants both, right? And again, that's not just talking about spirit in our spirit, it's a little S, but also any worship that is not a part of Holy Spirit worship is just false worship. And so he is, but what I want to want you to see there is God is looking for worshipers. And my prayer is at 2320 Sleepy Hill Road at uh, 1028. He's going to find a group of people here that want to worship him in spirit and in truth. As he's looking out, I hope he finds that. Well, as I began last week, there's four aspects in Psalm 103 that I want to look at, and uh, this is not, this the, it's kind of in a question format, and it wasn't original with me. It was in my study, uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, who is in heaven now, and his uh, uh, messages and commentary on the book of Psalms. I always like to see what other people are doing, get thoughts, and uh, make sure I'm, my thoughts aren't heretical, and that's always helpful. And uh, so I s- saw this kind of these four questions, and uh, so I give credit to him in using these questions. But uh, as I said, I might borrow the eggs and the milk and the flour, but it's my cake. I had to stir the contents. all right So just a FYI there. all right. So the first question we looked at last week, and just quick review. One was the first question was, how should a perso- person rather worship God? How should a person worship God? And we see this in the first two verses. David says, "Bless the Lord, O my soul." And how are we to worship is all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So the first thing is, is how should a person worship is that we should worship with our whole self. And we, we walked through that a little bit and talked about that, and it was a reminder That certainly worship is not limited to what we're doing here today in this celebration time, this service, but worship should encompass our whole life. But specifically when we assemble together in worship that we are to be all in. And it's a rebuke to me and my heart that at times, even in coming up to preach, that sometimes I'm distracted instead of the one that I'm here and gathered here to worship. And I just want to encourage you. You've invested the time to come here, take use of it, and worship God. You know, I'll be honest with you, and I won't say if it's this church. I'll just leave that up to your imagination. I've pastored several churches. But it grieves me that during the worship time when people are worshiping God and singing, that there will be people that are committed to the church. They're sitting down reading something on their phone or actually reading a magazine. And boy, it's all I want to do is say, don't do that. I mean, you're here. Worship and engage God. So let me encourage you. Uh, eliminate distractions, and invest in worshiping the one that I hope that you've gathered here to celebrate, and that is the Lord. So how are we to worship? All in worship. That's what God desires for us to be. We don't want to be like those people in Jesus' day in Matthew 15, 8, where he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away. From me, so how should a person person worship God? Bless the Lord, O oh, my soul, and all that is within me. And the second that we looked at last week was why should a person worship God? Why should a person worship God? And we took a little time in verse two of Psalm one hundred three. Bless the Lord, O oh, my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Are you forgetful? Yeah, I am. I my, I leave sticky notes and I have little alarms on my phone because I don't want to forget stuff, and I can easily get distracted. My wife will yell at me, not yell at me, she doesn't yell. Let me just clarify that. <laughs> but I'll be in my study, and she'll say in a gentle voice, why have you left the refrigerator door open? Well, because obviously I was distracted and went on to something else, and so that that, that happens. But We are told here to don't forget his benefits. And we looked at some of those benefits, uh, and really we're listening to David kind of preach to himself a little bit. The first benefit that we looked at in verse 3 was the forgiveness of sins. I I think that's amazing. First thing right out of the the box is David is thankful of the Lord, verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity, forgives all your iniquity. Verse 12, this forgiveness, he takes our sins Casts it as far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our sins or transgressions from us? That's what the Bible talks about as justification, that one of the main benefits, and if there was no other benefit, this would be sufficient, is that he has forgiven us of our sin. Amen. And as I said, you know, when there's ever a testimony opportunity, a believer, a child of God, always has one testimony if you're a child of faith, a a true believer, is you can give God thanks that he has forgiven you all your sins. Not some of them. He's forgiven me my sins today, tomorrow, the next week, in the past, he has forgiven them and taken them away. And the Bible again refers to that as justification. We've been made just in God's sight because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because of what we did, but because of the free gift In Christ, that we have received by his mercy and grace. And the second benefit, and this is where the train slowed down, this is where we spent about 35 minutes last week on this second benefit, and that's also in verse three, and that's healing. Healing. We spent a considerable amount of time looking at verse three who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all all your diseases. We talked about uh, the Scripture in Isaiah, you know, about that through his, by His stripes you are healed, and is there healing in the atonement? And we, I think we, 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 we spent uh, some adequate time on that, and I do appreciate the many uh, comments uh, that that was helpful in that explanation, that I hope that we tried to bring some balance there, that hopefully that was helpful in some of those things of of uh, regarding uh, physical healing, and so I'm just going to leave it there and encourage you to listen online as we, again, we spent a large amount of time on that. So the benefit of forgiveness of sins, healing, and this is where we're going to pick up today, is this third benefit under this uh, second heading concerning uh, of the why we should worship God. And this third benefit, not just forgiveness of sins, healing, but thirdly is redemption. Verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit. From the pit. Now I know some of you have been uh, Christians and have known Christ since a young age. And so maybe uh, you know, your, your concept of, of what that pit is is different to, the, to those of who maybe came to Christ in later years, that you have a vivid memory of the pit and the place that God has brought you from, that God has delivered you from. David says that he redeems your life. He has redeemed my life from the pit and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Pit means the grave, the death. The wages of sin is death. We were walking you know, the walking dead wasn't uh, the zombies. We were the walking dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, the Bible says. And when I thought about that grave and rescuing us and redeeming us from the pit, I was, I, my mind remembered, I think it was a few years back in uh, the summer of 2018, you remember when that, um, that group, that soccer team in Thailand was out uh, 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 kind of uh, d- discovering and, and exploring caves. And the, the uh, soccer coach uh, uh, took them into this cave to explore, and they were just going to stay in there about an hour. But the monsoon rains hit, and while they were underground, the cave's entrance flooded, and the coach and his 12 players, ages 11 through 16, were trapped in that cave. For about two weeks. And that cave this is, uh, was about two and a half miles down. That's a, and there was no way they were getting out on their own. What, what was necessary? Outside intervention had to come in for them to be rescued. You see, that is a picture the Lord just reminded me of, of that my estate... In life, the pit, the grave that I came from was an impossible situation for me to do anything. They were helpless. They were helpless, but they needed someone to rescue them. And thankfully, all of them except one, uh, a Navy SEAL, uh, lived, but they were rescued after about two weeks, two and a half miles in that flooded cave. Well, the Bible says that we were in death, living in death, and from the pit, David says, that God has rescued us. Do you ever stop and think where would I be? I think there was an old harvest song. You remember that group Harvest? Where would I be if the Lord hadn't saved me? That's an old song, but um, uh, but where would I be if God hadn't rescued me? And my friend, you were in a much deeper, uh, uh, desolate place than two and a half miles in a flooded cave. You know, sometimes we sing about, you know, just uh, the s- throw me the gospel lifeline and kind of pictures, you know, of the sinner out there flailing away in the ocean. That's not a biblical picture. You weren't flailing away in the ocean. You were dead in your sins. You were a corpse at the bottom of the ocean when Jesus rescued you, all right? You were helpless, all right? And so David says that he has redeemed my life. God paid the ransom. God sent the rescuing power of Jesus Christ that by his death that we have been released from sin's power and penalty and captivity. Thank God he has rescued me from the grave, from the pit. But there's another benefit that he says in verse 5 on why we should worship God and by the way, the reason just listening to these, if you ever, again, in your quiet time and you need to spend time with the Lord, just take these four things and begin to re- rehearse them back to the Lord and give God thanks in speaking these things that you're thankful for. And I, and I assure you, your personal time before the Lord in just doing what David is doing is just preaching to yourself, of what God has done, I assure you that won't be done in 30 seconds if you spend time in that. And so the second is satisfaction. Satisfaction, verse 5. Who satisfies you with good. God satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse 9 of Psalm 107, verse 9 says, For he satisfies The longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. You know, one of the things that is a constant for most all of us is the barrage of, and you've heard me say this before, the entire marketing industry is built and designed around stimulating you to be discontent with what you have. Nobody would buy anything. You wouldn't buy New Tide with Oxy.9 if you didn't think, what if I've been washing my kids' stuff in, all this junk this whole time, when there's the new and improved version? I mean, there would be no reason for you to ever buy a car or whatever unless you were just constantly provoked and stimulated that what you have is not sufficient, that your real happiness... Your real joy, real satisfaction is if you could just have this, if you could just have this vacation. Sadly, some are duped into if I just had a different spouse, all my problems would be done. And after the tenth time, you realize that maybe that's not your problem. All right? It in your spouse. It's the one that spouse is married to is the problem. Satisfaction, you know, Paul. Paul has some wise words for us in Philippians 4. And it's a reminder that satisfaction, listen to me, satisfaction does not mean that you should never desire a promotion, a job, a nice car, a nice house. You know, some that's okay. Okay? I, I mean, that's all right. There's nothing wrong... With, with God blessing you. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, is not in, in, a, in a right way desiring promotion or blessing. Hopefully it's so that you in turn, you know, would be a blessing in the kingdom of God that as God has blessed you, you're able to resource and, and do things in the kingdom of God and, and the church. But it's making sure that your joy, listen to me, your joy is not anchored to your stuff. Because when your stuff goes down the tube, your joy is attached to it and you're going with it. Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. By the way, Paul is in jail, house arrest, but in jail nevertheless. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned. I always stop there because that gives me hope. The Apostle Paul had to learn something had to learn a lot. But that gives me hope because I can still learn this. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, here it is, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, in verse 13, he tells us how that could be possible because I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. I think we can all be reminded of that. Satisfaction. God brings us satisfaction. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, but godliness with what? With contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. No U-Haul has ever been attached to a hearse. They have no hitch, all right? He said, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. He said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. This is an inordinate desire for wealth and promotion, He said, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, what does it say? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Not overnight, just... Drift, the job, the time, this. You know, sometimes, if you're like me, there's times you've looked back when you had very little and life was real simple then, right? And then as life went on and, you know, blessings, you get more complicated. Well, sometimes those blessings, instead of being rooted to cause us to give praise to God... They have actually caused us to wander away from the one who gave them to us. He says in verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Remember Jesus said, don't chase after what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. He says, for the Gentiles, we could say it, for unbelievers, chase after these things. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God, right? And his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Priority in putting God first. So the first question is, how should a person worship God? Why should a person worship God? And we looked at those benefits. But thirdly, is what is God like What is God like that we should worship Him? And He helps us in verses 6 through 18. And and as I said earlier, uh, as you read this psalm, I want you to get a sense of David just, just talking to himself, if we could say it that way, preaching to himself, preaching some faith to himself, uh, talking to himself about God, reminding himself of what God is like, reminding himself of all that God has done in his life. And, and, it, and it's important, and, and I know I've said this multiple times, it is so important that, that our understanding of what God is like, who God is, is vital, central to what we, how we worship God, right? Right? If your concept of God is the cosmic Santa Claus or the bellhop who is just waiting for you to snap your fingers to to attend and give you whatever your little heart ever desires, then your concept is going to be very shallow and trivial and, by the way, false, concerning the nature of God. Big God requires big thoughts about who this God is. David understood this. I always like, and I know I overuse it, but A.W. Tozer reminds us, just part of that, that quote at the beginning of his wonderful book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which is about the attributes of God, A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base, and when he means by base, he means low value, common, It's either pure or just trivial, low, as the worshiper, that's us, entertains high or low thoughts of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church, that's us, is her idea of God. And you know how you see that? You see that in the way that we approach an in-gathering service. You see it in how we worship. You see it in, in, the, in the content of the worship songs. You see it in, in whether church is, is a performance to entertain you, or are we here to come under and worship as a community of believers, as a redeemed people, God. God, in the, the wonderful glory and holiness of God. Right? You know, and again, Isaiah 6 he had that magnificent vision, and he says, I am undone, seeing the glory and the holiness of God. I think in our in our in our church life, not just not grace per se, but it affects all of us, is that we have so trivialized God and made worship something that happens up here than what the people of God are to be engaged in and gathered into. The worship team is not here to entertain you and provoke you. They are here, really, to serve and engage all of us in worship. You know, sometimes we'll call this the platform or the stage, and I get it. But again, this, this is, again, this is, this is holy stuff that we're doing. And that's why, again, it goes back to being all in as people that come in to worship. And again, I'm talking to believers, unbelievers Don't worship. We can entertain them. But unbelievers don't worship because they don't know God. You know, know, in the sense of knowing in a personal relationship. And that's why some churches have been built and designed to entertain unbelievers and hoping to coax them into knowing God. And churches, again, lose their path. They lose their way. And so David is reminding us about what... God is like. Look at some of these. He says in verse 7 through 9 that God is gracious. God is gracious. What is God like? God is gracious. Psalm 103, verse 7 through 9. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. The New Living Translation says, verse 9, He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. What a contrast between human wrath that is quick to rise and slow to fade God's God's graciousness is the opposite. He has much to rebuke against us, but does not accuse. He has much to punish, but all the ready to forgive us. He is a gracious God by grace. We talk about grace. He is a gracious God. Verse 10 says that He does not punish. The New Living Translation says that He does not punish us for all our sins, He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. Thanks be to God for that. But there's a second attribute. Not only is God gracious, but God is loving. God is loving. Look with me in Psalm 103, verse 11, and we'll read through verse 14. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father, how does He show His love? He shows compassion to His children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows, look at this, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Let's read verse 15 and 16. As for man... His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Aren't you glad that the steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting, the mercy of God, that He's a loving God? It's interesting, the word mercy in the New King James in verse 17 reads, but the mercy of the Lord in the ESV says steadfast Love of the Lord is the Hebrew word hesed, which is translated mercy or exuberant goodness. That God has given us exuberant goodness. And he contrasts that exuberant goodness is not like the fleeting wind that blows through it blows through our lives and it's gone. No, God's love is not like that. Nor is it feeble and temporary like the grass of the field that gets blown away or dried out or drowned out or like the change of the weather. God does not have a bad day. Aren't you glad God is not fickled like us? Aren't you glad that God has a steadfast love? And that hesed is rooted in that covenantal love that God, by His own authority and his own character has bound himself by that covenant that is sure and solid and everlasting. But there's a third attribute we see here in verse 13, and that is God is not only gracious and loving, but he is compassionate. He is compassionate. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Just let me hit pause because he mentions it uh, a few times as the word fear him. We see that a lot in Scripture. And the way the Bible uses to fear God is used in two different ways. And the context will determine in how it's interpreted. One, the fear of God, fear, is terror. Okay, It is fear. It is being afraid. It is terror. And then fear is used to speak of awe. We might say respect, okay? And so the Bible uses those two words in talking about the fear of God. I'll give you an example. Um, I've had the opportunity to uh, be in Grady Judd's office, and you can touch me after the service if you want. And when I was in his office... He wasn't in there, all right, so his secretary let me go in there, all right. But when I was in there, even though he wasn't there, there was a fear, but it was the awe and respect of that office and and his authority and his role. You with me? All right, I would not want him to come in and see me at his desk with my feet up on it, okay, so yes, there was a fear, right, all right. But that would be quite different of a fear that would be a terror had I violated a crime and I would be at one of those infamous news conferences where he's holding the picture up. You don't want to see your pastor's face on that picture, right? So if I had Sheriff Judge and his, his, his uh, deputies. That would be terror. Do you understand the difference in God? You see, as children of God, as born-again believers, we worship God in the fear of God, but that's the awe and the respect and the adoration of God. See, we are not under wrath. That is different. But there is a terror and judgment of God. And there should be Fear of this God. But look at this compassion as it's compared to that fear. As a father, notice the metaphor, as a father, the comparison shows compassion to his children. The Hebrew, this is interesting. The Hebrew word for compassion is rooted in the word womb. Think with me the picture. A child in the womb through that umbilical cord is connected to the nourishment, the life. The, it's more than just that relationship. They are literally part of the mother's very body herself. So if God's compassion, it's not just a theoretical from afar, yeah, I I feel sorry for those people. No. This is a rooted relational compassion that he has for us. Don't miss that. It's a tender love rooted like a natural bond of a child to its nourishing mother physically in the womb. I thought that was a wonderful picture there. In verse 14, this compassion is that he intimately is knowledgeable of us for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. His gentleness is not according to our sins, but his gentleness he knows us. Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows he knows how we're wired. You think nobody understands you. Nobody understands you. That's not true. The one who made you understands you. Knows you. Knows how you're wired. Knows all your peccadillos. That's a Greek word, I think. Uh, Knows all your little things that nobody else knows. God knows all those things about you. You know why? Because that Psalm 139 speaks about how he wove us while we were yet in our mother's womb. He put us together and He knows everything about us. He knows all your DNA and all the, all the data in that DNA that still is a mystery to the greatest minds. God knows all this. And He yet loves us and is gracious and compassionate to us. But the fourth attribute that David just rehearses back to himself is verse 19 is that God is sovereign? Verse nineteen says, "The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all." You see, the sovereignty of God is not some abstract theological concept. The sovereignty of God is the truth that God rules over all. That there as 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 I. You know, you've heard the quote by R.C. Sproul If there is one rebellious, renegade atom, molecule, cell, running loose in the vast universe that is not under the direct control of the sovereignty of God, then by definition, he can't be God. We talk about free will. Let me tell you something your will ain't that free. You hear what I'm saying? And we say, well, God's a gentleman. He will never violate your will. Oh, yes, he will. Read your Bibles. He will violate your will. Because God will do what he wants to do. And his will is perfect. And his way is perfect. We sometimes use these little cliches, but they're not rooted in any real meaning. Has God trumped your will of your life over something? You bet he has. And thanks be to God that he has. We have this idea that I'm just some autonomous being out here and God is just kind of limited in what he can do. Yes, there are choices I make. There is responsibility. But listen, my friend, God is in no way hindered by the sin of man. Isn't that what Joseph said? For what man meant for evil... God meant for good. God is bigger than the bad. He's bigger than the sin. God's will will dominate and is sovereign over all things. There is great mystery there. You'll have an eternity to to hash it out. I don't think it'll matter. After about a 10 millionth year, you'll still be wondering, how did I get here other than by the grace and mercy of God? I'm glad God is sovereign. I'm glad he's in control. I'm glad I'm not in control. I'm glad Washington's not in control. I'm I'm glad Vladimir Putin is not in control. I'm glad that God rules over all. He He can turn the heart of a king like he manipulates and turns the waters of a river. And that's why you need to know who God is. Get out of that, that God is just the God of the good parking places at Target. He's more than that, my friend. He's in control. And you see, the reason that's important is because it doesn't take much. But a call from Watson Clinic about those tests, a letter in the mail, a phone call from one of your children it doesn't take much for all of a sudden your little world that you thought you had under control to spin. And you can't get a hold of it. Right? But you know what? He's never out of control. Do I understand all there is? No, no. And you don't either. David didn't. But he knew this one thing. The Lord has, past tense, established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Yes, we are awaiting a consummation of the kingdom of God with Christ ruling, but we are, we are in the already aspect. We're waiting for the not yet. We're not waiting for God to rule. He's ruling right now. He's in control right now. The sovereignty of God, when you grasp, I don't mean understand all the little nuances and questions, but when you grasp the sovereignty of God, it will be the greatest source of comfort than anything else in all of Scripture. The sovereignty of God. You see, it's the sovereignty of God that is the basis for the assurance that we have as believers that Paul tells us in Romans 8, Romans 8, 31 through 39. Paul says, "'What then shall we say to these things?' If God is for us, who can be against us? I want another name. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he starts naming things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. You fill in. As it is written for your sake. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can I say that? How can I read that with confidence? If I have a God who's always kind of at wit's end to what I do and what mankind does. That's not the picture of Scripture. You see I think the believer and me at the top of the list we lose the heart of worship because we become so distracted from where God has brought us that this grace is not amazing anymore. used to be amazing grace. Now it's yeah, so, so. yeah, it's, it's cool grace. It's nice grace. It's an amazing grace. I was thinking about uh, the, remember the, I think it was 52 of the uh, hostages that were being held in Iran a little over a year from uh, 1978 and they were released on inauguration day of 19 uh, was it 1980 or 81? 81, they were released in 81. They were captured or in that embassy in Tehran. Do you remember that, some of you that were around? Old like me. Uh, and they were there for a little over a year and then were released. I remember this picture. And I remember seeing it even with... Uh, POWs that came back from Vietnam that the first thing they did, many of them, when they got off the plane was what? They got out on their hands and knees and they kissed the ground. Remember that? No matter what their rank was, their achievement, what they earned in the armed services or whatever it was, those hostages that were released after over a year from being held captive in that American embassy by the Iranians. They were home. And they got down on their hands and knees with their clean lips on that dirty tarp, that dirty tarmac, whatever it was, and they kissed it. And you know why they bowed? You know why they kissed the ground? You know why? Listen to me. Listen to what I want to say. Because they knew where they had been. And they knew where they were now. See, the Christian stops bowing because they forget where they are now. And they forget where they were. Don't let the heart of worship grow cold, distracting, hardened, and you just begin to drift and wander away. And God feels so distant. Remember where you were. But remember what the word says of where you are right now. Let's pray.